Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 195. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here to start catching up on some anniversaries. Yes. There were actually a considerable amount of Disney release anniversaries at the end of June, which makes sense because that's when a lot of kids get out of school. So that's that's when those summer movies start to come out. Right. But one of the summer movies that came out this year was Thor Love and Thunder, and we were preparing for that. So we have to catch up on some anniversaries, and we're starting with The Rescuers, which are celebrating their 45th anniversary. Yeah, so the films that celebrated the anniversaries were obviously Rescuers, uh, Lilo and Stitch celebrated their 20th, uh, and Brave celebrated the 10th, which I can't believe. Uh, And we put it out to a vote on social media, and by very popular demand, Rescuers was the winner. So we're going to start with that and then we're going to work our way through the rest of them. How often did you watch this one as a kid? Because I didn't watch this one all that much. Same. I think I maybe saw this once uh, and now I understand why because it's terribly sad, which we're going to discuss. Yeah. Uh, It was more about Down Under for me because my dad took me to see that in theaters um, so that was more my jam as far as rewatchability goes. Well, I have questions that we're going to answer. Questions like, is this a missed opportunity? Should this be one that you watch more often than you do? That on top of many other things is what we are here to discuss today. This episode is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms, ornaments, and personalized photo nightlights. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Hidden Mickey Supply Co. on Instagram and Etsy and stay up to date with all the new releases. Inside the UN, a delegation of mice known as the Rescue Aid Society meet to discuss a help message in a bottle sent by a girl named Penny who has been kidnapped and is being kept on an abandoned riverboat in Devil's Bayou, Louisiana. Miss Bianca, the delegate from Hungary, volunteers and selects the society's janitor, Bernard, to join her and return Penny to Morningside Orphanage. At Morningside, Bernard and Bianca meet an old cat named Rufus who tells us that Penny had been passed over for adoption and one day she ran away and police gave up their search. Rufus recalls Madame Medusa offering Penny a ride, so Bernard and Bianca go to her pawn shop and find Penny's school book. Madame Medusa receives a call from her partner Snoops, who tells her that Penny has been sending rescue messages in bottles and that he needs more time to retrieve the Devil's Eye a diamond that Medusa's seeking so she grows frustrated and heads to Devil's Bayou knowing Penny's whereabouts Bianca and Bernard board a flight on Albatross Air Services and fly to Louisiana on the back of Orville their seagull pirate Uh, pilot. Um, (laughs) I like that better. Yeah. At Devil's Bayou, Penny tries to run away, so Medusa sends her alligators, Nero and Brutus, to go after her. Snoops fires a flare and shoots down Bernard and Bianca, who meet Ellie Mae and Luke, two muskrats who introduce them to the neighbors, including a dragonfly named Evanrude, uh, who help her find 
Penny as she is being brought back to Medusa. Bianca and Bernard then learn that Medusa and Snoops are using Penny to find the Devil's Eye because she is small enough to fit into a black hole that feeds into a cave to retrieve it. The mice are found by Brutus and Nero and exposed to Snoops and Medusa and narrowly escape. Medusa tells Penny that no one would want to adopt her, but she could have a houseboat to herself if she gets the devil's eye. Bianca and Bernard get to Penny and start to plan their escape. The next morning, Medusa takes Penny's teddy bear, Teddy, and forces Penny into the black hole to get the diamond with Bianca and Bernard in tow. Bernard and Bianca find the diamond, but the tide starts to come in and fill the cave with water. They quickly retrieve the diamond from inside a skull and return to Medusa and Snoops. Medusa double-crosses Snoops and refuses to split the take with him while Brutus and Nero hold Penny they take hold of Penny. They don't really hold her hostage, but they take hold of her. Evan Rude gets to Luke and Ellie Mae to get help from them and the rest of the neighbors. Medusa puts the diamond in Teddy and is attacked by the neighbors, while Bernard and Bianca trap Brutus and Nero in an abandoned elevator. They then set off all of Snoop's fireworks while they commandeer Medusa's swamp cruiser and escape while Brutus and Nero turn on Medusa and hold her at bay. The diamond is then given to the Smithsonian, Penny is adopted, and the Rescue Aid Society continues on to their next mission. All right, Uh, let's talk about the opening slates for this film. Because this is some of the best artwork, and you had said this when we watched it last night, this is some of the best artwork we've ever seen out of Disney, period. Yeah, I was really surprised that this was not Ellen Shaw's work. Um, But really, Ellen Shaw did more, both father and son, they did more of the live action backdrops. Um, These were just such stunning paintings. And it's so different the way they start off this film because we see Penny throw the message in the bottle out for help. Yeah. And then it goes into this series of paintings. Yeah. and the song that's playing is just so emotional. I don't know. Maybe maybe I got emotional because you're seeing a lot of familiar names. Uh, specifically some nine old men names. Uh, and, you know, this is as they're getting in later years. This was one of the last ones that they did. Um, so I kind of I kind of had a tear in my eye during those opening credits. So much to the fact that we are going to ignore that a message in a bottle somehow got from Louisiana to Manhattan (laughs) because it doesn't make sense that it would have gotten from Louisiana to Manhattan, but we're going to overlook that. Well, I don't want to just gloss over it because the other thing that struck me about these opening credits is that we know, we've said it a million times, Disney, anytime that they had a film based off of a book, they show the book in the open. Uh, this does not start with a book on blue on blue velvet. Uh, it says that it was suggested by uh, the rescuers and Miss Bianca by Marjorie Sharp. So they've acquired the rights to the books here. I'm not familiar with the source material, but I'm wondering if that's why there is so much back and forth between Louisiana and New York because they blended two books together. Yeah, I know that Walt Disney had acquired the books in the early 1960s, and originally he wanted to set the story in Cuba with a refugee coming to the United States. 
and that's who was being rescued. But with politics turning the way that they did in Cuba, he abandoned the project, and then obviously he passed away, so he never... I mean, this is one of many stories and many books that he had acquired that he never got to see made. Um, so I'm not really sure how they landed on Louisiana. I know that, obviously, if you go to the Disney parks, Louisiana and New Orleans are such a big thing there. It's such a theme, and Walt Disney really loved that city. That's really the only thing that I could think in regards to how they landed on this as a destination. Full disclosure, it's also one of the only things that we could find, because unfortunately, there is really not a lot out there about this film. So I was really curious. I mean, there's nothing on Disney+. Plus. I was hoping in the extra features, we'd get some insight onto the book acquisition and what they took from that. Um but just not a whole lot of history here, which is really a shame. Uh, I think the only other big thing worth noting, and I think that that has to do with part of the opening sequence uh, of animation, is that this is at the time when Don Bluth was still working at the studio. So right. you definitely see a lot of his work in here as well. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the start of the actual movie, though, other than the opening credits. Um we see the mice inside the UN. I love the fact that this delegation of mice is put inside the United Nations. I thought it was so clever, and I thought that it really spoke to what the UN is supposed to be doing, um, but with mice. Uh, I thought that it was symbolic. I truly loved that this is... For, for some of the settings that scratch your head, this is the one that I think makes the most sense. Yeah, I like that... Uh, they're just overtly doing this. If you think about something like 101 Dalmatians, Pongo and Purdy go to save their kids because Scotland Yard failed them and they right. take it upon themselves. And there's this whole chain where they do the twilight, twilight bark and all the dogs know uh, what the call is and they know to help. And they're able to go on this journey and, and help reunite the family. In this case, all of the mice are just sort of sitting here almost waiting for the human world to fail so that they can step in and have a case. But um, I love this setup here and I really love how um, at the meeting when you see all of the mice coming together, they correspond with their human counterparts from each country uh, right down to the color palettes. I thought that was really well done. Yeah, something worth noting. This film at the time and even now has been credited with being so diverse because you have mice representing so many different countries, including a lot of countries in the Middle East, that a lot of films at that time were not really, they weren't really casting those roles as protagonists. But that's something that Disney did in this case. And what's amazing is that they did it without stereotyping anyone. I mean, they really represented the cultures well in the costumes that were, you know, designed both both on the humans and with the mice. And for those that had speaking roles, they didn't do anything crazy over the top with accents either, where I, I don't think it would be found offensive. Right, which is why for all of the things that are in this movie, smoking, guns, pawn shops, NRA badges. NRA badges. This doesn't have the warning that you get 
when you watch certain films on Disney Plus. You just sounded like Stefan on SNL the way you were listening. I know. I know. Uh, which kind of like, leads you to believe that there would be a warning, but there's not. Because um, they do everything very tastefully, and this movie was such a success overseas because of the diversity. Believe it or not, remember, this came out in 1977. In France, this outgrossed Star Wars the year wow. it came out. Think about that for a second. That's wild. And that is, that is like a huge box office return tremendous for the time period um i think that is one thing though if they do i mean i don't know if they're going to do a live action remake obviously you'd have to cgi the mice that is the only thing that they could do better by giving more mice speaking roles in the native language but like i said even though they didn't go over the top with accents all of the mice are english speaking uh but they did try and balance that out because Bianca is representing Hungary and she is voiced by Eva Gabor, who is a Hungarian actress. So we're going to get into that a little bit later when we talk about the characters. But, you know, they did do a really good job of diversifying this film. Let's talk about how they do introduce some of these characters. I like the introduction of Bernard. I like his superstitions. I like that they poke fun at it because I think that it sets the table for exactly who this character is and how he is going to be a fish out of water and uncomfortable in any situation that Bianca puts him in. But they make him likable enough where you're totally rooting for the underdog. Right. Um, Bianca takes pity on him because everybody is making fun of him. I think that that's another good introduction to her because she she's not just looking out for the best interest of Penny, who she doesn't even know yet. You can just tell that she is probably the person that fits in most at this rescue society because she has the best interests of everybody in mind. Agreed. I also love the sense of adventure that they give her. I was almost reminded of like Casablanca or Indiana Jones, the way that the men in those films are trying to treat the lead women uh, far too delicately when they can absolutely hold their own. Um, and that's exactly what Bianca reminds me of. So I wish they had sort of leaned into that a little bit more. They They sort of do on the flight because she's not afraid. Uh, you know, she just loves the travel, but because they've established Bernard as being sort of the nervous Nelly and very superstitious, um, you don't necessarily see that balance with her sense of adventure. She's just sort of a calming presence for him. So I think they kind of buried that a little. Yeah. And I think that they used that at times to develop a romance that I don't think any of us really needed, but I want to put a pin in that for now. Right. We're not quite there yet. First, we have to have our hearts broken. Yeah. Um, the Penny and Rufus scene is the scene. Oof. It is the scene that I remembered when we sat to watch this. In fact, when we sat to watch this, you had said to me, I don't think I remember much of anything from this movie. And I said to you, I, the only thing I remember was they looked at me, but they picked a little redhead girl because she was prettier. That's the one thing I remembered from this movie. Just I, I'm, I must have intentionally blocked that out because it just guts you. It's so good, though. 
It really is. I love the introduction of Rufus as a whole yeah. where uh, obviously it's the cat and mouse setup. Um, and instead of running Bernard and Bianca out of the house, he's just like, oh, I'm too old for this and I'll get in trouble if if I don't catch you. So just do what you have to do and move along. Yeah. And I like how they develop the relationship that he had with Penny because that's you have, like other than Penny throwing messages in a bottle, we don't know anything about her. Right. She she needs help. We don't know why. So I thought that this was a good way of introducing us to her. And what I like about this film in all, because it's got an hour, 19 minute runtime, is that it's fairly well paced. Yes. There are some instances where maybe we could have lived in some scenes a little longer with some characters a little bit longer. But I don't think that this is one of those scenes. And it has nothing to do with the fact that it's heartbreaking and everything to do with the fact that they are just expediting character development in the best way possible while still getting their message across. Agreed. I I wish we could have lived with Rufus a little bit longer. I mean, you do get him again at the end of the film, but I just loved this kindly old man that they set up. Uh, and I love the character design. I'm dying to know if Ollie Johnston uh, animated it himself or designed the character because I don't think he was... He was fully animating at this point anymore. Right. Uh, but I'm wondering if he did it in his own likeness or if Frank Thomas drew up this cat based on his friend. Could be. Um, let's talk about the pawn shop because naturally uh, the villain owns a pawn shop because of course they do. <laughs> um, it's like, I get it. Well, no, I don't really get it. There's really no reason for this to exist in this movie. Yeah, and this is where I wish we knew more about the source material because, to me, th this seems like such an elaborate operation that they don't focus nearly enough on, that you're running a pawn shop in New York, but then you're also collecting diamonds in Louisiana. Yeah, because who are you Who are you pawning them to? Exactly. It, I, I feel like they were like, well, New York in the 70s was was a hole. Let's just call it what it is. It was a hell hole. And it was known for dirty, sleazy shops. It's funny how it reverted back to that, but <laughs> that's what it was known for. It was known for like what, Eighth Avenue was really skeezy. Right. A lot of adult entertainment and pawn shops, right? So like I understand like if you're trying to lean into the setting, it makes sense, but you spend so little time there that I feel like it would have worked better if this was like an underground diamond dealer. Yes. Because who are you pawning any of this to? Right. I mean, they do paint a good picture by Rufus telling Bernard and Bianca that this pawn shop is up the block from the orphanage. So you're absolutely right. It does give us the idea of like seedy New York. Um, but with that in mind, I think it just would have served the film better if we had a little bit more of a backstory on Medusa and why she's collecting these diamonds from the bayou. It could be as simple as, I hate this pawn shop, I want to get out of this, and the diamonds will make me rich, so I'm taking them and selling them. But instead, it it sort of sets this uh, sets up this idea of that she's going to pawn the diamonds off. 
But she doesn't want all of them. She only wants She just that wants the one. one. Meanwhile, if you took all of them, you'd be sitting pretty. Right. You could still get the one that you wanted, but you could be pawning off these other diamonds in the shop that you own, that you earn. That's your livelihood. You know what I'm saying? Like, it it just doesn't make sense that that's what they went with. I, I, again, at the risk of repeating myself, I think they just went sleazy that or had they just set the entire thing in Louisiana, you could have had an orphanage in New Orleans and Penny just could have gotten kidnapped. I, I just don't understand the distance thing. And if the whole point was just so they could go and take the ride with Orville, that that's weak sauce. You wrote yourself into a corner there. And we also don't know why. The owner of some pawn shop in Manhattan seems to be the only person searching for this famous diamond, and she's the only one that tracked it down. Right. Again, if they had maybe flushed out her relationship with Snoops a little bit, yes, that might have clued us in. But all we get is this initial phone call, which serves to let us know that he's inept, and that's why she's got to get down there herself get down there by way of the old deville mobile this is recycled animation at its finest i mean i'm not gonna lie i was happy to see it again but it's just so funny because during the pandemic when everybody was like very heavy in social media because it was all we had um there was that video circulating of all the recycled animation and you saw, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves cut against the Robin Hood scene where Marion's dancing. You saw several scenes from the Jungle Book recycled into Robin Hood and the Sword and the Stone. How this was not part of that montage completely escapes me because this is not the most egregious recycling. Because I think people forget about this movie. And that's a question that I think we answer later on. Is it a forgotten classic and should it be a forgotten classic? Right. It's just so interesting, though, that that sequence with Cruella's car was such a headache for them to pull off where it goes down the cliff in the snow. I feel like that's such a sacred piece. I'm really surprised that they would bust it out again. They were trying to save money where they could. Well, they had to, right? I mean, this was before Little Mermaid. Yeah, well before Little Mermaid. What, 12 years before Little Mermaid. Um, Let's talk about how as different as some things are, whether it be Disney or otherwise, some things remain the same. Like, we missed the flight. No, we didn't, because flights are always late. I mean, that's accurate no matter where you are and it's still timely today so that doesn't bother me how but that's what how this is more this is more an attack on air traffic than it is anything else how all these years later how are we still getting it wrong i mean that is the one place where i'll write it off as okay taking place in new york does make sense because like trying to get out of jfk on time like that that does hit close to home, so that one gets a pass from me. I'm ruined though when they when the pilot says you can call me Orville because I immediately think Carousel of Progress. Oh yeah, that's Uncle Orville, straight up. Um, but I love the sardine can that he has on his back, and that's what they use to strap themselves in, and they're gonna fly down there with him. Um, I love the whole idea. Albatross Airways yeah. is something that only 
those nine old men could have come up with. It, it, like, it's so tongue-in-cheek, but everything they did here worked. It did. I just wish we had a little bit more context, and, and this is, like, real nitpicky, uh, as to where Orville was coming from, because the whole thing is that he needs to be cleared for landing, and he gets, like, a five-minute break, and now he's going to fly to Louisiana? Yeah. I think he needs a little bit more of a beat to rest up before he takes off again. Well, he just clearly he's past his prime and he won't admit it. And he thinks that he can do anything. So I actually buy the fact that he could have flown from Brazil, taken a five minute break and then flown down to Louisiana. Regardless, the flight sequence is really beautiful. Starting out in the streets of New York, you get all of those really nice marquee signs, uh, in the nice part of New York that wasn't seedy at this point. Uh, and even though geographically it didn't really make sense because then they show the Brooklyn Bridge, which means that Orville was headed east before he started going to Louisiana. Whatever, I digress. Uh, it was still really beautiful. And then you get into the bayou. This is a setting that I love. I think that this is incredibly animated and it does such a great job to set a mood. Agreed. They really knocked this one out of the park with the silhouettes of the swamp, and then this decrepit riverboat. I love this set. And to me, this I would have liked to see in the parks. Like, as much as I love paddlefish, no disrespect there, I would have loved them to see them do something like this and a character dining experience with Medusa and Bernard and Bianca uh, on, on the riverboat. Because when you think about what the theming of the Empress Lily used to be, I think it would all work. Pass. I like paddlefish too much. <laughs> no, I do love paddlefish too. Uh, but yeah, the, the set is amazing here. What I'm not jiving with, though, is that we know that Penny has been gone for three months. They at least give us that much exposition in the phone call that in three months they've been mining all these diamonds but haven't found the one that Medusa wants. Um, I just feel like this is, again, such an elaborate operation when the pawn shop is in New York and yet Medusa clearly spends enough time in Louisiana to have tamed these alligators as her henchmen yeah. Yeah. because Snoops can't handle them himself. Right. Yeah. There's just a lot that goes unexplained. And it just leads you, like it, like you said, there's just a lot of questions. There, there are things that lead me to want to know more, and we never get those questions answered. Like, when the movie ends, I shouldn't have more questions than I started out with in the beginning. What's not in question for me, though, is that they managed to tame these alligators. This is where I think it just would have gone a lot farther if the entire thing took place in Louisiana. Correct. And there wasn't so much back and forth because otherwise, like, I love this setting so much. I kind of just want to be like, all right, no questions asked. Yeah. I mean, this is one brave kid, though. When she is just walking through the swamps in the bayou to escape, that's one brave kid. I mean, think about what she's been through, though. Yeah. What what she has waiting for her on that boat is worse in so many ways. So she just wants to get away from it. Yeah. To the fact that she prays for it too. I mean, I think that's something that as you watch her get fleshed out, 
I think it's a great character moment. I also think you would never see that in a Disney film today. We said that when we watched Snow White. I I think that for a modern audience, I think they're not going to understand why that's in a Disney film. And I think that kids today are probably going to question why it's there. I'm not saying that that is correct or incorrect, but I think that that does make the film, for kids of a certain age, I think it's going to date the film a lot. What I do appreciate about it, though, is how it balances out Penny's character, because even when she's talking to Rufus and then later Snoops, um, everything is channeled through Teddy and she uses Teddy to talk about how she's feeling. And I feel like that would have gotten very annoying if we didn't get this POV, because then we wouldn't think that she was acting of her own volition. I mean, we know she has a clear motivation. She wants to get back to the orphanage because she wants to get adopted. There's no greater motivation than that. And that's also to your point, why the Bayou doesn't scare her. Right. Where I do wish we would have spent a little bit more time, though, is with Ellie Mae Luke and the neighbors. I think that these characters are really funny. I mean, they're mice drinking moonshine. What else do you want? And I think that, like, when we sat to watch it this week, it was almost like watching it for the first time because I haven't seen it in so long that I was like, why don't I remember any of these characters that are clearly going to play such a big role? Because we're getting introduced to them as soon as we land in the bayou. And then they're gone until we get them for three more minutes, and then they're gone again. I wish that we would have spent more time with them. I I wish that we would have learned more about them. I wish they would have been developed a little bit more because they're funny and... They serve as good comic relief, but they're also heroes at the end. And there was just so much opportunity there that for as well-paced as the movie is, this is something that I felt that they rushed through that you could have, all you had to do was give them five more minutes of screen time. That's all you needed. And it didn't need to be in that, it didn't need to be a five-minute block there. You could have broken it up and it would have made sense. And it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been a scene that dragged on for so long. And I think we would have gotten a little bit more out of them. Especially because they were raring to go to help. And because you have them waiting on Evernrude coming back, you could have probably cut back to them a couple more times, to your point, to push the pacing forward. Uh, But then you could have had that funny comic relief to balance what Penny and Bernard and Bianca are going through. Right. So now, Bernard and Bianca find Penny... And I had said to you when we watched the movie the first time, there's this line where they tell Penny that they're there to rescue her. And she goes, well, didn't you bring somebody big like the police? And they said, no, it's just us. And I said, now imagine if the movie just ended. (laughs) It ends on that line. That would have been hysterical. Of course, this never would have happened because no one would care. But like, for me, comically, I... I kind of laughed at myself. I don't care how that sounds. I laughed at myself and laughed at the rest of the movie thinking that the movie just ends there. And how funny would that have been? I mean, they really could have ended it earlier. 
had Bernard and Bianca just gone straight up to Penny's room the first time they find her on the boat and gotten her off. Instead, they go down where Snoots and the alligators are and Medusa's still running around her, on her airboat uh, looking for Penny. Right. Which I love the airboat. I think that that's brilliant. Uh, had you done that, though, I mean, yes, obviously the movie just comes to a screeching halt but you also wouldn't have got that amazing scene where the alligators are playing the organ trying to push bernard and bianca out the top yeah it's a great sight gag it really is it it's probably one of the best things that disney has ever done and it gets completely overlooked because it's it's such great comedy within the animation and it sets up what their ultimate goal is when when they start fleshing out their plan like with the elevator and all that and how to trap uh, the alligators, you you know that it's there because you've already seen it because of that scene as they're getting chased through that riverboat. Right. Um, but let's talk about the plan that Medusa has, which is we're going to kidnap this child because she's small enough to fit in the black hole. And you go back to the conversation that Rufus had where... You know, we're always told, don't get in the car with strangers, right? But she's never been taught that because, well, she's in the orphanage, right? I mean, she doesn't necessarily have a parental figure. I mean, she's got authority figures that she answers to, but she doesn't have that uh, parent that's going to tell her, don't get in, don't take candy from strangers, don't get in the car with a stranger. And Rufus says that they offered her a ride. Clearly, she was going to school because they have her school book. And they, they preyed on her and they kidnapped her to fit her into a cave. I love that they did this. I know it's dark and it's horrible and it's phenomenal. Honestly, as far as villains go, this is a brilliant scheme. You're taking a kid from an orphanage, so you have a bunch of kids to pick from at your disposal because it's not a set of parents watching them. It's probably going to take a while to even notice that one of them is gone. Um, and then because, and, and maybe this is where the out of state operation lends itself here. Nobody even knows where to look for Penny. And that's the really sad thing is that they gave up looking for her very quickly. Yeah. She's a miss. She's a runaway. Right. That's just how they kind of wrote it off. Well, she was an orphan and she's a runaway and that's it. Not, not wasting the resources. Can't find her. Goodbye. And I wish that you could give Medusa or Snoops the credit for thinking that far that uh, they are just going to write her off as a runaway, but I don't think that was part of the plan because these two are as bumbling as they come. He is. She is only because I think that she's hysterical all of the time. Mm. She's bumbling the way Cruella DeVille is bumbling. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think she's more emotional and hysterical than she is a fool. He certainly is. I don't think Cruella is bumbling, though, because she barks out orders. You know, she's got Horace and Jasper doing all of the dirty work while she kicks it, you know? Um, In this case, obviously Medusa gets involved because she can't trust Snoops to get the job done, but... I feel like she's not doing a great job of executing it herself. Fair enough. Let's talk about the actual cave that the uh, diamonds are hidden in. This is the last time I will say this, I promise. I wish they had just set the entire thing in Louisiana and they could have leaned more into the pirate thing. 
like it would have been kind of cool if Bernard and Bianca had to track Penny down almost by following this pirate lore, like following a treasure map. And as I'm saying this out loud, now I'm thinking that that would have just ripped off the Goonies. Um, No, this came first. Oh, this came first because I started writing just like the Goonies and I scratched it because the Goonies came after this. Huh. All right. Well, then I'm going to die on that hill. It would have been a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any problems with how this film turned out, but it would have been a lot of fun. And you could have tied it into, you know, New Orleans Square and Pirates of the Caribbean and the Blue Bayou Restaurant. Like, there's just so many ways that you could have tied it in. Um, Because, I I mean, I think that it's interesting that they picked Pirates in Louisiana anyway. Right. And I'm kind of surprised that they didn't lean into it. Although, I mean, let's be real. In 1970, well, 1977, the movie got released. They were doing production as early as 1974. That's when they recorded a lot of the dialogue for this film. And they had the book as early as the 60s. So they're not thinking of IP. They're not thinking about tying it into the park. But it's interesting, though, because Walt had such an affinity for pirates and he loved Treasure Island. So you would think that just sort of piggybacking off of that would have been enough to tie it all together. I mean, look, you and I are never going to say less pirates, right? Right. So this might just be a personal bias, but I I think it would have lent itself to creating even more of an adventure especially because Bianca sets that up in the beginning like yes this is a rescue yes the goal is to get Penny but it would have been even more interesting to build on that right and tie your A and B story together more but I like that Bernard is the one that figures out like if I'm gonna hide something somewhere I'm gonna hide it where people get scared that's where I'd hide pirate treasure so you have that hole where the tide comes up and it fills the cave he's the one that figures it out he and Bianca go and they're the ones that find it um and I love how this diamond is animated the fact that it's hand-drawn animation in the 1970s and it looks that good makes me do what I do every time we watch one of these films and I pound the desk and go, why can't we just do more hand-drawn animation? It is absolutely stunning. I mean, they are doing tattoos like this now where the more facets you put into the diamond, the more it looks like it has that shine. But we're talking about 45 years later that we're starting to see this as a trend. I mean... It, it's just incredible. Um, I don't want to gloss over how perilous the situation is. This might be one of the most, aside from the little red-haired girl at the beginning, this might be one of the worst things that Disney has ever done. Yeah, I mean, she's getting trapped. She's not coming out of that cave. Medusa's no. going to see to it. Because Medusa at this point has taken Teddy, and she's first saying, you're never going to see Teddy again if you don't get me the diamond. And then it's basically, well, get the diamond or die. Well, I guess they figured we didn't kill a parent in this movie, so let's put a child in a life or death situation. I'm fine with it. Because you have to make this villain, to your point, you you look at her and Snoops as just bumbling. I think she's far more diabolical than you're giving her credit for. Well, 
Yes. And that's why you need this to happen. I I was going to say that a little bit later on. She is one of the most underrated villains because there is this diabolical plan and she doesn't care whether the kid comes out alive or not. No, she just wants the diamond because let's be real. If she doesn't come out, she's going to go get another kid. Right. Because she knows where the diamond is. Exactly. She's just going to go get another kid. And then she'll be like, let this be a lesson to you. Say hi to your friend down there. Exactly. That's exactly what she's going to do. But they get their hands on the diamond. They bring it out. And she double crosses Snoops, which isn't a surprise. Um, And I don't care that they didn't really build up to it. But it almost seems like, I don't know, there's something about this that just falls a little flat. Mm. Because she's like, because all she says is, you can't cut this diamond in two because it's a perfect gem. And he launches into, you double-crossed me. Well, not necessarily. I mean, yes, she does. But, I mean, I guess that's it. He's such an idiot. It's like, you wouldn't just cut it in half, though. You'd sell it and split the profit. Like, did you really think that you were going to get your hands on this thing and literally just take a knife and cut it down the middle? Exactly. And as they're having this conversation, the camera is pulling away. Yeah. Because they still have Penny dangling over the hole. Then, I guess Brutus saves her from falling in because he's got her in his clutches now. Yeah. Which... That, again, kind of didn't make sense because they are Medusa's henchmen, but at the same time, they are alligators, so you don't really want to find themselves to find yourself in their jaws. Um, but they also kind of go soft because they could have let her fall, so why were you the one to, to pick her up out of the hole? And wouldn't you just want to get rid of her at that point? You, you can't use her for anything anymore. This is where... That just sounds horrible, but I mean, that's the truth. No, but you're right, though. I mean, this is where it would have been helpful if if Penny made a break for it, and then they grabbed her. We we just needed to see that. Or if they ditched her in the cave, and and Bianca and Bernard do something to get her out of it. Well, that's the thing. We never see Bernard and Bianca come up. Right. Because the way that they do it, when, when they're still at the bottom before Snoop starts pulling them out... Bernard and Bianca get in the bucket. Penny puts the diamond in the bucket. And then she puts her foot in and she's hanging on to the rope. So they're all in the base. And then by the time you see the next shot where she's at the top, she passes the diamond off. Right. So you never see Bernard and Bianca come up out of the bottom. Right. Technically, you don't. Um, But they get right into... The end of the film here where Medusa's literally holding Snoops and uh, Penny at gunpoint while she's going to escape. And, like, movies do this. Just just bleep and shoot them. Like, you, like well, just shoot them. Well, like, I, know, I know it's a child and it's a Disney film. They're not going to do it. But I don't like where movies do this in general. Where it's like, I'm going to back up slowly and I'm going to keep you there. Because as soon as you turn away and leave with the weapon, where where are these two going to go? Right. Immediately to the authorities to come after you. I mean, it is the monologue trope, right? She's yeah. talking too much and not doing enough. But with that said, they do very much lean into the gunfire uh, earlier on when Bernard and Bianca are being chased off by Medusa. She right. thinks that there's just mice on the ship and she's trying to get them out. Another recycled animation that we almost forgot about. Um, 
Medusa might actually be the one to shoot Bambi's mother because <laughs> we see it it just kills me because it's not even like a background character that they recycled it's not like with Cruella's car where they just did another character in it they straight up put Bambi and his mother at the banks of the bayou yeah there i mean what do you want me to say yes there's no defending it if there it's them it, it just straight up, my jaw was on the floor as we were watching that. And then, the, you know, as they're going around the bayou, there's um, a couple of birds from the April shower song. Mm-hmm. But that's what I'm saying. That's passable. You you straight up put a main character as in the background here. I'm like, Bambi of all things. Yeah. I don't it, it know was that I'll ever thing, be over this. It was one thing when they planted Scar as a rug in Hercules. Yeah. Because that was done tongue-in-cheek. But this would be like if you went into the pawn shop and she had Pinocchio up on the wall. But even that's an Easter egg. It's not like Bambi would... Like, the Easter eggs are usually planted when you return to the same setting. Like how we see in Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Belle is running around the square. Right. Um... It, it's not like Bambi took place in Louisiana where you'd expect to see him there. Bambi just takes place in the woods. But it's clearly not the swamp. The, not the swamps. Yeah, there's a huge difference. Um, all right, let's move on from that. Cause yeah, because we we'll, we'll talk in circles about that all day. The end is rushed. I think that for the... Obviously, Penny's going to get away. They're going to get the diamond. But it just seems like, oh, the neighbors are back, and we attack uh, Medusa, and her alligators turn on her because, because, and we get away on her airboat, motorcycle, cruiser thing. It, it just, like, to build up to that moment, we kind of get through it a, a little quickly and a little too conveniently. Um. Yeah, this is where, to your point earlier, it would have done well to develop Ellie Mae and the rest of those characters a little bit more, like to see their skill set and how they would fight when needed. Regardless, though, I love Hillbillies to the rescue. I mean, did it drag on a little bit as far as Evan Rude having to get back to them and let them know that Bernard and Bianca needed help? Yes, but it doesn't take away from, you know, the like the jug band song as they're running through the woods coming to the rescue uh, and everything that they do to help out where it does feel rushed and very convenient though, is that this whole riverboat is full of fireworks. And I know that they call to it before when they accidentally set one off and Medusa goes, you and your infernal fireworks. So we know that Snoop has been stocking them up. Why? We don't know. Um, but it just seems far too convenient that that's what ultimately takes the ship down. Yeah. And then we go back to New York where Penny tells viewers on live television that she talks to mice and the reporters don't ask any questions about that. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> they sort of just move on from that. And then um, she gives them a shout out. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that that was a good way to end the film, though, because it's thanks to a little girl the Smithsonian now has, and she's been returned to the orphanage where she's been adopted. It's like, great, we didn't have to see, for some of the things we did have to see play out, we, this we didn't have to see play out, 
this is where the pacing is really good. So it's like, this is where I get kind of frustrated, like, like sitting down to talk about this because I said it earlier, and this is probably the second to last time I'm going to say it. Um, for as many times as the movie is so well paced, like in this, there are instances that we discussed earlier where it just seems too rushed. So like, I just wish that they would have been like, so I wish they would have done this the whole time and been more consistent with the pacing. Cause it makes sense to do it here. Agreed. I do really like though, how that news broadcast ties everything up in a bow. You're not left wondering, but what happened to the diamond? You know, it's not like Titanic where she still got it on her. Uh, and then she gets adopted and years later. Oh, I had it the whole time. You know, it did address everything. I'm going to, pull out the pin that you set before uh, as far as the are they or aren't they between Bernard and Bianca uh, because now we see them f- going on their next adventure with Orville who again and Evan Rude yeah with he's with them now in the snow um, Orville is another one though that I wish that they had done more with like it would have made more sense rather than have Ellie May and these other characters that we don't know much about to have Orville come back and help bring down Medusa and Snoops. Right. Um, But to circle back to the are they or aren't they, I'm kind of okay with how they did this. I didn't catch it the first time. Um, Obviously, you know that Bernard has a crush on her. Everyone has a crush on her. And they set up this idea of rooting for the underdog. But what I realized the next time around is how much it's really Bianca that's putting the moves on him. The whole time. Yeah, and she's kissing his cheek and treating him like, oh, my hero. Uh, And they do address it because he does say at the end, oh, I guess we can say that Penny brought us together and she agrees. Um, So I'm I'm fine with it. I didn't need like a big smooch on the lips at the end. but but I le- I think they eased us into it fine. I think the only problem that I f- find with it is that she kind of goes from having pity on him to kind of crushing on him to just kissing and canoodling him. And this hap- this all happens very quickly. I'd say if I- if I'm looking to be exact, 12 minutes of running time in the movie. We go from crushing on him to kissing him to canoodling with him on the back of Orville. And it's like, are you doing this because you feel bad for him? Are you doing this because you actually like him? I they That, that doesn't really get developed, and it seems like it happens a little too fast to the point where it's confusing. Like, like, to, like almost like, is it patronizing? You know what I'm saying? Like... They don't flesh it out enough. See, I don't think so at all. And to me, it doesn't read that she's pitying him either. Um, I think this is where they would have done well to lean into developing her character a little bit more in the beginning as this adventurous spirit who's not being taken seriously. All of these other guys, you know, she... I mean, she plays up to it, right? She squirts her perfume on before she walks into the meeting. She shows up fashionably late and she's making all of these heads turn. Bernard, who doesn't think that he has a chance, is not treating her the way that the rest of these men in the room are. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why she takes to him. I don't think that it's pity at all. I think that's why she hand selects him to go with her. All right, let's talk about the characters and the cast, starting with Bob Newhart, who plays Bernard. 
I love Bob Newhart. I liked him as a kid, which says an awful lot about me. <laughs> but I think that he was so perfect for this character. Other than Ava Gabor, he was probably the most perfectly cast actor in this film. I agree. I think that kids now would know Bob Newhart most certainly from Elf, possibly from Legally Blonde. Um, but at the time, this casting would have seemed completely out of the box. But I love that they got him, and I think he was perfection. And Ava Gabor, we've seen her before. We talked about her when she was in Aristocats, and she's just as good in this. Yes, this, obviously, Aristocats came first, uh, and clearly Disney liked working with her. Um I think the voice is perfect for Bianca. I'm not going to lie, though. There are certain lines that get delivered where if I close my eyes, I think it is Duchess speaking. Yeah. So she didn't do too much to change her inflection. Uh, but I I love the voice and I really like the character. I just wish that they would have done more with her, even though she's a lead, even though she gets plenty of speaking time. Um even though it does feel like an equal partnership with Bernard, I think that they could have done more to develop her in the beginning. Michelle Stacy plays Penny, and she knocks it out of the park. You root for her. Your heart breaks for her. She was absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Um, Penny, I, I, like it, it amazes me how many times we see her cry in this film. I mean, if she's got a scene, she's essentially crying. Yeah. Uh, and that is one of the reasons that this is a tough watch. Uh, but I, I think, you know, the performance too, uh, it, it gives it that much more gravity. Geraldine Page plays Medusa. And Medusa looks like a cheap like overseas knockoff of Jessica Rabbit <laughs> who comes much later. She's she's bootleg. That's a bootleg <laughs> Jessica Rabbit. Uh, but she's, I really like her. I, I think that, I, I, I wish that we would have had a little bit more time with her. Honestly, like she's somebody that I look at and go, instead of just doing these live action remakes of movies that we're not asking for, I said, do more. Like, do something like this. Do something like that. Do do something like this character. It worked with Cruella. Like I'd rather Heck them do. Yeah. Like, it did it with Maleficent. Some of the best ones that you've done have just been live action interpretations of the background story of villains. This is one that I would like to see fleshed out. That's a great idea. You're really onto something. Uh, I do agree with you, though, with regard to spending a little bit more time with her, because to have such a diabolical play, I mean, really, put her up against the the modern villains. I mean, okay, Scar, his plan is to take out his brother, so maybe th that's pretty diabolical, but even somebody like Jafar... His plan is to become an all-powerful sultan and then a genie. Right. And like, okay, he does try to kill Aladdin, which is diabolical also. But like, if you just look at the initial motivation, her plan, and I love Jafar, her plan is so much more complex. It just would have been nice to see this character have the chops to back it up. Yeah. 
Joe Flynn plays Snoops, who looks like a sleazy accountant. <laughs> um, Why a suit in the bayou? That's the thing. We don't know much about him. We don't know where he came from. We don't know why she trusts him. Um, I wish that this is another instance where we would have fleshed him out a little bit because he does work as comic relief, but I just don't understand why he's there. I would buy more if he was in the pawn shop with her and they had like another henchman who was actually doing the dirty work with Penny. I would have bought that a little bit more. Um, this is an instance where for as beautiful as the animation is throughout the film and you get things like the flying sequence and the diamond, the animation does not always feel cohesive. And that is evidenced by the suit. The other thing too, we skipped over this when we were talking about Bernard and Bianca. I do love them. I love the character design, but I hate that we don't get the whites of the eyes all the time. They gave them and the hillbillies these beady little eyes and it's not unless you have a close-up shot where you do like the full animated eye um and besides being inconsistent um i just feel like you lost the opportunity for some really good animation there it's all in the eyes right yeah i agree um all right let's move on to music because there are other characters but honestly like they just don't get enough screen time. Before we move on, though, there is one character that I want to mention, and that is Ellie May, and she was voiced by the same actress that was the Widow Tweed in Fox and the Hound. So, two movies that just, you know, stick the knife in and twist it. Yeah, we didn't... Well, that says a lot about her, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, let's talk about... There's a couple of songs here, starting with The Journey, which is the song that plays over the opening credits. They ask the question, "Who will rescue me?" A lot. It's a like it's a it's a nice it's a beautifully composed song. There's just not a ton to it. If you don't listen to what the lyrics are, it's a better song. If that makes sense, like it it sounds nice as an instrumental. As an instrumental, and the vocal is, is very pretty, but. Yes, it does get repetitive when you actually pay attention to what the lyrics are. But honestly, I kind of don't just because the sequence is so beautiful. Yeah. Rescue Aid Society. This is a forgotten earworm. It wasn't until we sat for the first time that like almost as soon as they launched into it, like it immediately like it like something snapped in my brain and it came back. Yes. And I'm like, I have not. I probably admittedly had not watched this movie in about 30 years and immediately I I snapped back into like singing this song in my head that I literally had not sung or thought about since I was about five years old. I completely forgot about this one. It's so good. Yeah, and it it carries such an important message. It is a shame that it's forgotten. I would love to see... Something like this. I mean, I know they do a lot with Up in Animal Kingdom, but I would love to see something like this carried over to the parks. Yeah. Tomorrow is Another Day is the ballad that, I guess, like, firms up the romance between Bianca and Bernard. And, like, my only knock against it is I feel like it exists so that people are like, oh, they're a thing now. 
that's my only knock against. It's a nice song. It's a nice tune. But I feel like it serves as exposition. Just, okay, there are a couple now. Right. And that's where it's like, if you just did this for time to to stretch the movie out, it really doesn't make sense. Like, then make this film a musical. Although I don't think being a musical would have served the film in any way. My point is, instead of having, you know, an omniscient voice singing the song, which does completely take you out of it, it would have been nicer if this had come from Bianca. Yes, exactly. But again, I don't need to see her bust out into song either. Agreed. Um, And then the last song in the film is um, Someone's Waiting for You. The song is great. It's just too damn depressing for me. I mean, I at least it 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 serves its purpose. It does its job. This is an inherently sad and depressing film most of the time. And I think that's the brilliance of the song and it's also what I dislike about it all at the same time. Same thing. I'd buy this more if Bianca was singing to Penny. Correct. Okay. Um Final thoughts on The Rescuers. I'm going to go first this time. Okay, I usually give it to you, but I'm going to go first this time. Because I honestly still don't know where I'm going with it. Okay, so I'll give you a second to think this one through. Here's the weird thing. To me, the film is near perfect. Because I think the characters are great. I think the actors are great. I think the story is complete. I think the story is entertaining. I think the movie is well-paced. But at the same time... Some of the characters are not developed enough. Some of the sequences are not developed enough. Some of some of what should be very important elements to the film seem a little rushed. Again, not developed enough. So, like, I- I'm struggling with it here because I enjoy the film a lot. I think it has rewatchability. Is it dated? I kind of think it is um, because I I think that for the most part, other than a film like Up, you don't see a lot of Disney films that are depressing like this. You expect it out of Pixar. You don't expect it out of Disney. So I think that kids today that are used to watching things like Frozen and Tangled, I don't think they're going to want to watch this. Um I think it's the same reason why they don't really watch The Fox and the Hound anymore. To me, they're very much one and the same in terms of the overall tone. But it doesn't mean the film's not great. Like, it is so close to being perfect and yet so far away at the same time. You just articulated everything that I am struggling with. And I don't want it to sound like... I wasn't sure what to say, so I'm just agreeing with you. But that is my big struggle with it is that frustration. We have sat here and picked it apart and not only given suggestions as to what could have been done, we have pointed out things that just weren't done well, period. And in spite of that, I still really enjoy this film. And this is not an instance of, okay, well, this is a film that I grew up on that doesn't really make sense, but I'm going to give it a pass because I loved it when I was a child. Having watched it only once or twice and revisiting it now, I have no prior investment in this film. Um, But I can honestly sit here and say that despite all of these story and character issues, I still really enjoyed it. 
But I also think a lot of that has to do with just out and out stunning animation. And that's where the rewatchability is for me. Yeah. Well, we want to know what you have to say about the rescuers. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. So much news. Hey, guys, my name is Mike. I listen to Jackie and Sean's podcast every week on my commute into work. So I reached out to Jackie, and she helped me put together the perfect getaway. I did a four-night Disney cruise ship, and she was able to answer every question that I threw at her. She put together the perfect dates and an insurance plan that made the whole experience stress-free. She was able to help me with little tips and tricks, like you can get a Mickey Mouse bar delivered to you any time of the day. And I think that was a mistake, because now I put about 10, 15 pounds on. I'll definitely be using Jackie again in the future. Thanks for everything. So if you are interested in completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can go to MagicalVacationPlanner.com, fill out the contact form, and request me as your vacation planner. Or you can email me directly at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at MagicalVacationPlanner.com. Hi, this is Kelly from Carmen Kismet, your official monorail news sponsor. And I am very excited to throw it over to Sean and Jackie to talk all about the Disney news. But before I do that, I want to make sure that I share with you guys where you can check out all of my Disney-inspired art at KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. Don't forget, listeners of the show get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. So to see all of the services that Kelly is talking about, you can go to her website, KarmaAndKismetDesigns.com. That's Karma, the letter N, KismetDesigns.com. There's an awful lot of news this week because they are out in San Diego at Comic-Con. Which is why there was no news last week. They were holding everything starting with Deadpool and Deadpool 2 coming to Disney+. Plus, There are a lot of parental groups that are upset that it's there. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. I love Deadpool. And I don't want to sound like I'm clutching my pearls. This film has no business being on Disney+. Plus. Wow, I was not expecting you to say that. I think until such time that Disney Plus has a feature on it that you can lock anybody, say, under the age of 17, if I if I can't, as a 16-year-old, buy a movie ticket independently and go see it in the movie theater, why should a six-year-old be able to stumble upon it on Disney Plus? I will give you that one. I mean, I know that they do have parental controls on Disney Plus, but not enough where it's going to filter Deadpool out where they couldn't just stumble upon it. Um, So maybe that just means that we'll have to review it sooner rather than later so that parents know what they're getting themselves into. Because here's what's going to happen. We're going to get Deadpool on Disney Plus for a while, and I guarantee you it's going to be taken down because somebody's going to claim that they didn't know and their kid just found it, and and people are going to be up in arms about it. I feel like anything that Disney has, unless they have a feature where you have a 17 and up profile, that's something that is literally anything that's R-rated has to go off of Disney Plus. I don't understand why they're not just putting this on Hulu. That's a fair like, point because that's me, what like, Hulu was what, supposed to do, right? right? Like, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. Lizzie McGuire got pulled off of Disney hmm. Plus because it was too adult themed. Now you're going to tell me that Deadpool's going on there? It, it, it defies logic. I can't wait to see the little blurb for why it's inappropriate. Like, you know how they have... 
you know, depictions are yeah, yeah, dated yeah. and smoking. Uh, and there's even one that detailed, well, there's a sketch of a nude person. <laughs> this is going to be like a page long, starting with crotch shot in the opening credit sequence. So, yeah, if you haven't seen Deadpool Parents, that's what you're up against. We also have an announcement, National Treasure. They've been talking about this series coming to Disney+, and we know what the title of it is, which is National Treasure, Edge of History, coming soon on Disney+. And I believe there's also a teaser trailer that they dropped, too. Yeah, there's a teaser, but it doesn't tell you anything. So you don't know what... That's the thing. Like, we don't know when it's coming, which means Disney does not know when it's coming either. I'm excited for it, but, like, can you give us something, please? And honestly, I'd rather have a date than a teaser trailer just for me personally because obviously we're going to review it leading into the release on Disney Plus and it would be really helpful to know when that's coming. We know Tron. when Yeah, we know when I am Groot is coming because they dropped a trailer for I am Groot and I that... did not appreciate the Guardians 3 fake out in the beginning of this trailer. Well, the shorts are coming to Disney Plus on August 10th. Yes, it's it's a shame that it's not a Guardians 3 trailer, but this is exciting. This I'm looking forward to. This has a ton of potential. Yeah, this is a great trailer. It clues us into exactly what we're going to see. Um, I, I feel like this is going to be the equivalent of Olaf shorts almost, where you just get everything that you loved packed into a short. Um, at the time of this recording, though, Comic-Con is not over yet, so I'm still holding out hope for my Guardians trailer. No, I don't. Well, Guardians, yes. You may get a Guardians trailer because almost everything that they've announced at Comic-Con has been Marvel, um, including... Well, it's Comic-Con. Yeah, okay. Thanks. I understand (laughs) that. But if... Yeah, but Disney has a presence at Comic-Con. So if this they do, was not but a you're going to make it Marvel-focused. If this wasn't a D23 year, you'd be getting a lot of Disney-centric content announced. I will give you that one. And that also sort of validates what we've been thinking this entire time, that it's going to be, that D23 is going to be Disney Plus heavy because they don't have enough to go on with the parks. Correct. They did announce Spider-Man Freshman Year, a series that is coming to Disney Plus. Um, so does that imply that we're going to see Uncle Ben die over again? I just thought the same thing, and I don't need to see it again. Yeah, I mean, I I haven't read into that at all yet, um, but that's part of the reason why. Yeah. What If is getting a second season. We still haven't watched the first season. We're going to get there. We promise. And so many people are excited that X-Men 97 is coming to Disney Plus in fall of 2023. So we'll see you on Christmas. Um, <laughs> let's call it what it is. Um, a lot of people have been wondering, when is Disney really going to start delving into the X-Men? And we kind of, sort of had the answer during Doctor Strange and the Mer- uh, Multiverse of Madness. But this is the first time we've had it confirmed that Disney is doing something X-Men. This isn't just we picked up, you know, the film rights and we're going to stream it on our service. Like, this is actually their production. This has a lot of people excited. Right, because, I mean, everybody was very excited over Doctor Strange, but I don't know if they're trying to throw us off the trail because John Krasinski has not confirmed that he is going to be part of the MCU. So I don't know if... 
what they did. I mean, obviously, Doctor Strange is canon, but I don't know that they're going to make that part of the Infinity Saga. I don't know. In that world that we're in. But I guess we're going to find out soon enough. But we want to know what has you excited from Comic-Con 2022. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio, or you can email us monorealradio at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for joining us this and every week on Monoreal Radio. I just mentioned all of that social media, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and TikTok. Uh, at Monoreal Radio. I gave you the email address. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate us on Verbal or your podcast platform of choice. And for links to everything related to the show, it is online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.